everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. Tonight, in the 62nd session of our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, we conclude both the before and the after of the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. What, you thought we were done with the Battle of the Pelennor Fields last week just because I wept openly on the internet? No, no, my friends. First, we have to talk about the Pyre of Denethor, and then we get to move on to the Houses of Healing, featuring the welcome reunification of Peregrine, son of Paladin, and Mariadoc, son of Saradoc, which I suppose actually gives us a really interesting trivia question because Mary is referred to, or hmm, I want to be very careful about this so as to not mislead you. Mary's name is given in the prose of the Lord of the Rings as, as Mariadic son of Saradoc only once. Can you guys remember when that happens? Oh, I said remember, so presumably it's something that we've already covered here on There and Back Again, which is admittedly most of the book. We are closing in fast on the end of book five here. I'll give you all a couple of minutes to think about that. So we start this chapter, of course, in the aftermath of the Pyre of Denethor. We had the first slide from the Pyre of Denethor last week as Pippin goes to Gandalf to warn him about what is happening with Faramir. We start this chapter in the aftermath of Gandalf's confrontation with the Witch King of Angmar at the Great Gate of Minas Tirith, which was interrupted by the crowing of the prescient cock of Gondor, and then, of course, the horn of the Rohirrim as Theoden King charges out onto the Pelennor, leading his knights behind him in inglorious battle. So right now, it's important to remember, as we're discussing the Pyre of Denethor as a chapter, all of these events take place between the sounding of Theoden's horn, when he blows that horn and bursts it asunder, and... Well, shortly after the fall of the Witch King of Angmar, right? We're going to actually hear the great shriek of the Nazgul as he is slain, and then we'll have just a couple of moments after that. So everything that happens in this chapter is happening as the battle on the Pelennor is absolutely raging. Um, Wilhelm Scream says, Niramar, Faramar, wherever you farar. My heart will definitely go on. Uh... Shane asking, did Theoden call him Mariatic? Uh No, it's not actually from uh, Theoden. Theoden... Hmm. Does Theoden call him Mariatic? I think he does. But the moment that I'm thinking of, Mariatic, son of Saradoc, the only time that we get that specific formal uh, uh, formulation of Mary's name is actually at the gates of Isengard. It's when Mary and Pippin are lounging around acting as door wardens for Saruman. Remember when Gandalf and the Rohirrim show up? Mary gives his name as Mariatic, son of Saradoc, and that is the only time that we get reference to Mary's father in the entire book. In fact, if you exclude the uh, the index uh, right at the end of the book, that's the only time that his father is mentioned. So, Yes. Mariatic, son of Saradoc. There it is, right at the gates of Isengard. Um, let's get into it. Oh, Jackie's joining us too. Excellent. Excellent. It's a pleasure to have you all here with us this evening. Let's get into our first slide as we learn that darkness is passing. They passed on, and as they climbed and drew near to the citadel, they felt the wind blowing in their faces, and they caught a glimmer of morning far away, a light growing in the southern sky. But it brought little hope to them, not knowing what evil lay before them, fearing to come too late. Darkness is passing, said Gandalf, but it still lies heavy on this city. At the gate of the citadel they found no guard. Then Baragond has gone, said Pippin more hopefully. They turned away and hastened along the road to the closed door. It stood wide open and the porter lay before it. He was slain and his key had been taken. Work of the enemy, said Gandalf. Such deeds he loves. Friends at war with friend. Loyalty divided and in confusion of hearts. Now he dismounted and bade Shadowfax return to his stable. For, my friend, he said, you and I should have ridden to the fields long ago, but other matters delay me. Yet come swiftly, if I call. They passed the door and walked on down the steep, winding road. Light was growing, and the tall columns and carven figures beside the way went slowly by like grey ghosts. 
Suddenly the silence was broken, and they heard below them cries and the ringing of swords. Such sounds had not been heard in the hallowed places since the building of the city. At last they came to Rathdenan and hastened toward the house of the stewards, looming in the twilight under its great dome. Stay! Stay! cried Gandalf, springing forward to the stone stair before the door. Stay this madness! So the light is coming. The southern wind is blowing. The clouds are being torn to tatters above the fields of the Pelennor. Theoden King right now is, is hastening to war with the green, uh, the green grass excuse me, ablaze around him, the light reflecting off of his mighty shield as he charges the host of Mordor. But the shadow still lies heavy on, well, as Gandalf says, the city, giving it the capital C there, but more specifically on the citadel itself. Because, of course, in the lower tiers of Minas Tirith, we're presumably watching the charge of the Rohirrim. Presumably, most of the able-bodied men of Gondor who have been manning the siege up until this point are watching Theoden rally across the field, are presumably sallying forth themselves. We get some accounts of, of the men of Gondor claiming some foes in the shadow of the Great Gate, the, the Great Gate that has, of course, been torn asunder by Grond at this point. So Gandalf and Pippin hurry onward to... Uh, well, to what is inevitable. You'll note, too, Gandalf's, uh, Gandalf's call-out here. Well, his paired call-out, right? Work of the enemy, said Gandalf. Such deeds he loves, friend at war with friend, loyalty divided in confusion of hearts. The porter has been slain and his key has been taken. We will circle back around to this in a moment because, well, it is, in a sense, the work of the enemy, right? Gandalf is not wrong. The slaying of the porter, however... Well, while it may be regrettable, while it may be tragic, and it certainly is, it isn't quite the work of Sauron. It isn't quite a dark deed committed with treachery in the heart. This is something else entirely. We'll talk about Baragond a little later. So Gandalf gives up Shadowfax, lamenting that they have not ridden to the fields long ago, but other matters delay me yet come swiftly if I call... Gandalf couldn't go forth. We talked about this right at the end of last week's session. Gandalf is about to ride forth after the Witch King of Angmar. He's about to take to the field where presumably he is going to offer a generous assist to the Rohirrim who are currently cutting a swath through the host of Mordor. But he can't because no one else can help Faramir. And now that he knows that Faramir is in danger, he has no choice but to help. But he can still lament the necessity of this. He can still lament his absence from the field, though, as we discussed last time. Turns out that maybe Gandalf's absence from the field is, well, prophetically positive. Is this catastrophic? Well, it's kind of enfolded in the greater eucatastrophe, I suppose, of the slaying of the Witch King of Angmar. But yes, we might be generous enough to say that actually Gandalf being distracted by Pippin at this moment by being called to, well, if not greater service, then at least a more specific service in his role of steward of all of Middle-earth, as he said to Denethor the last time they talked. Gandalf has been taken from the field, which allows Merry and Eowyn to do what they do to the Witch King of Angmar. So they march down toward the, uh, the, uh, the tomb here, toward the last resting place of the stewards, and they hear the sounds of conflict, sounds that have not been heard in these hallowed places since the building of the city, and Gandalf, desperate, stay, stay this madness. Let's look at Denethor himself. Even as Gandalf and Pippin ran forward, they heard from within the house of the dead the voice of Denethor crying, Haste! Haste! Do as I have bidden! Slay me! Slay me, this renegade, or must I do so myself? There upon the door which Baragond held shut with his left hand was wrenched open, and there behind him stood the lord of the city, tall and fell. A light like flame was in his eyes, and he held a drawn sword. 
But Gandalf sprang up the steps, and the men fell back from him and covered their eyes, for his coming was like the incoming of a white light into a dark place, and he came with great anger. He lifted up his hand, and in the very stroke the sword of Denethor flew up and left his grasp, and fell behind him in the shadows of the house, and Denethor stepped backward before Gandalf as one amazed. Oh, what is this, my lord? said the wizard. The houses of the dead are no places for the living. And why do men fight here in the hallows when there is war enough before the gate? Or has our enemy come even to Rathdenan? Since when has the lord of Gondor been answerable to thee? said Denethor. Or may I not command my own servants? You may, said Gandalf. But others may contest your will when it is turned to madness and evil. Where is your son, Faramir? He lies within, said Denethor, burning, already burning. They have set a fire in his flesh, but soon all shall be burned. The west has failed, it shall go up in a great fire, and all shall be ended ash, ash and smoke blown away on the wind. Denethor here is, as Gandalf says in just a moment, is claiming the right to choose the moment of his own death. He is choosing to die rather than face the insurmountable odds which await him, for reasons which we are not going to get to until the very next slide, in fact. Denethor is convinced that the battle is lost. Stricken by grief, stricken by despair, he is now seeking to end his own life and, by extension, by proxy, the very existence of, well, Minas Tirith at the very least, but Gondor in the more general sense, right? Denethor, as steward, is holding in trust that national identity, which we discussed so freely over the course of the last couple of weeks, talking about Theoden as Rohan, Eomer as Rohan. Well, Denethor isn't quite Gondor. As a steward, his role is somewhat different, but he is holding in trust. He exhibits no mastery. But he does exhibit authority. He is entrusted with authority. That is the role of the steward. And here he is casting it all into the flames. The West has failed. The line of the men of Numenor, and even possibly by extension, the goodness of Valinor, though we don't quite know Denethor's feelings in that regard, but the line of the men of Numenor, at the very least, has failed. All now has fallen to ruin. He is hopeless. He is despairing, to reiterate that point which we've discussed so often in the course of the last few chapters. Hope and despair is the preeminent theme of book five, by the way, which is why we are spending so much time on it. It is going to spill over into book six, but in book six, we are going to get within the frame of the first three chapters of book six, a very different perspective on hope and despair. And of course, we threw into the mix last time when we were talking about uh, Eomer there as he's watching the Corsairs come, we threw in defiance as well. What we do when all logic and rationality tells us that we know the outcome beyond all doubt, but wherein we still feel a kind of hope, a kind of destructive hope, not a constructive hope. We do not presume that we will survive this, but there is still goodness to be found. There is still virtue to be found. And so, as we look at Denethor, we are, of course, inclined to contrast him with Theoden, to contrast him with Eomer, to contrast him with Faramir. Certainly, we will have explicit reason to contrast him with Faramir in just a couple of slides' time, as he gives his accounting of what it is that he wants now. But the madness has taken him. The grief has taken him. Faramir lies within, burning, already burning. They have set a fire in his flesh. Denethor wants to choose the moment of his own well, fate, ultimately, right? That's what it's about. It's not about death necessarily. What it is is about exerting control over the world. Denethor is choosing the moment of his death, and he is also, with wild injustice, choosing the moment of his son's death. That is absolutely beyond the pale. That is that is not permissible. That is not forgivable. But the choosing of one's own moment of death is actually something that 
well, the old kings of Numenor used to do, which, major spoilers, I suppose, Aragorn himself will do. But the old kings of Numenor, and Aragorn ultimately too, are reflecting upon an inevitability. They are not seeking to escape their responsibilities. They are not seeking to escape adversity and, and trial. They are recognizing a moment of fulfillment when it arrives. Denethor is not doing that. What should Denethor be doing? Of course, we get this beat. Uh, um, and there behind him stood the lord of the city, tall and fell. A light like flame was in his eyes, and he held a drawn sword. To which Gandalf replies, What is this, my lord? The houses of the dead are no place for the living, and why do men fight here in the hallows when there is war enough before the gate? What the hell are you doing? Let me give you a quick primer on what good kings do, Denethor, right? I know you're not a king. I know you're a steward, but you're holding the authority of a king. Good kings are out on the field leading their men. I can name uh, two, three. Let me check my watch. Three, any minute, right? Because Eomer, any minute now, is going to demonstrate that kingly quality which you yourself so desperately lack. Here, you are turning your blade against your own men. You are turning your men against their, uh, against their, their fellows and their compatriots. You are doing the work of the enemy, which... Of course, Denethor actually is. And the mechanism for that is revealed to us here. Come, said Gandalf, we are needed. There is much that you can yet do. Then suddenly Denethor laughed. He stood up tall and proud again, and stepping swiftly back to the table, he lifted from it a pillow on which his head had lain. Then coming to the doorway, he drew aside the covering, and lo, he had between his hands a palantir. And as he held it up, it seemed to those that looked on, the, looked on that the globe began to glow with an inner flame, so the lean face of the Lord was lit as with a red fire, and it seemed cut out of hard stone, sharp with black shadows, noble, proud, and terrible. His eyes glittered. Pride and despair, he cried. Didst thou think that the eyes of the white towel were blind? Nay, I have seen more than thou knowest, grey fool, for thy hope is but ignorance. Go then and labor in healing. Go forth and fight vanity." For a little space you may triumph on the field for a day, but against the power that now arises there is no victory. To this city only the first finger of its hand has yet been stretched. All the east is moving, and even now the wind of thy hope cheats thee and wafts up Anduin, a fleet with black sails. The west has failed. It is time for all to depart who would not be slaves. Such counsels will make the enemy's victory certain indeed, said Gandalf. Hope on, then, laughed Denethor. Do I not know thee, Mithrandir? Thy hope is to rule in my stead, to stand behind every throne, north, south, or west. I have read thy mind and its policies. Do I not know that this halfling was commanded by thee to keep silence, that he was brought hither to be a spy within my very chamber? And yet in our speech together I have learned the names and purpose of all thy companions. So, with the left hand thou wouldst use me for a little while as a shield against Mordor, and with the right bring up this ranger of the north to supplant me. But I say to thee, Gandalf Mithrandir, I will not be thy tool. I am steward of the house of Anarion. I will not step down to be the doted chamberlain of an upstart. Even were his claim proved to me, still he would be but of the line of Isildur. I will not bow to such a one last of a ragged house long bereft of lordship and dignity. Who boy, you guys. This is a masterful confrontation between two great powers in Middle-earth. Yes, Denethor is a great power in Middle-earth, entrusted of the line of stewardship here, entrusted with the power of the throne, with the identity of Gondor. He is all but king here in the south, and he is absolutely worthy of standing against Gandalf at this point. 
Let's talk about the Palantir first. We're going to get an account from Gandalf of the actual use to which the Palantir was put, but this resolves a couple of outstanding problems, right? Problems. Problems is too strong a word. This resolves a couple of outstanding questions, certainly. How is Denethor so well informed? How does he know about Aomer, right? Remember when he's asking Pippin about Aomer? Remember when he's demonstrating this acute knowledge of what has been going on all around the lands of Gondor? Well, it turns out it's because he had a Palantir. He has been looking for this Palantir. By the way, this is the Anor Stone. Remember, this was Minas Anor before it was uh, before it was um, Minas Tirith. This is the Anor Stone, preserved by the stewards of Gondor, apparently never used before Denethor. The paired stone, the Ithil Stone of Minas Ithil, later Minas Morgul, over there on the eastern side of Asgiliath, was seized by the enemy when the Nazgul took Minas Ithil and transformed it into Minas Morgul. In fact, it is that Ithil Stone, it is the stone that was taken from Minas Ithil that Sauron has used to communicate with and corrupt first Saruman at Isengard using the Orthanc Stone, and now Denethor, here in Minas Tirith, using the Anor stone. He has seen. He has knowledge. He has looked out and beheld the world and come to the only conclusion to which one might come. Pride and despair, he cried. Didst thou think that the eyes of the White Tower were blind? Nay, I have seen more than thou knowest, Grey Fool, for thy hope is but ignorance. Yeah, you can fight this fight. You can strive to drive back the enemy to preserve another day or week or month of peace. Yeah. You might do that, but ultimately, ultimately we are going to fall. Ultimately, we are going to be crushed. I know more than you. To the city, only the first finger of its hand has yet been stretched. All the east is moving, and even now the wind of thy hope cheats thee and wafts up onto in a fleet with black sails. The west has failed, he repeats. There's a fleet of black ships coming up the Anduin, and we know what that means. They're the Corsairs of Umber, right? This is exactly the moment that we saw last time, when all hope goes out of the men of Gondor, all hope of the men of, the, uh, of Rohan is lost in that moment because we behold the black ships of the Corsairs of Umber. Denethor knows exactly what is coming. He is experiencing exactly the kind of despair that Gandalf warned us about. When, when all knowledge of the future is certain, when you know exactly how things are going to play out, then hope falters and turns to despair. And Denethor believes, in fact, that he knows exactly what is going to happen. For thy hope is but ignorance. We talked about this a little last week when we were talking about Aomer and his despair, because he too beholds the black ships of the Corsairs of Umber and is Fae, right? At that moment, he summons his men to him, and all he's thinking about is, okay, we build a shield wall, we get down from our horses, we build a shield wall, and we take as many of these bastards as we can before we fall beneath their blades. That is it. All hope now is lost. But he is leaning into defiance. And this is, well, this is actually going to be called back in... One of my favorite passages of the book, a passage which absolutely, absolutely poleaxed me today. I, I, was, I was stunned by this passage today. Not that I haven't been stunned by it before, but I was struck by it anew today, reading it right at the very end of book five, literally the last part of book five when we were in Pippin's POV. I was struck again by that sense of defiance and what distinguishes those who falter when they are struck by despair and those who act when they are struck by despair. And that, I suppose, is what is missing from Gandalf's calculus of hope here, right? 
Hope allows us to act because we believe that tomorrow can be better than today. We believe that the future is not fixed. We believe that the outcome is not yet certain, so we can take action. It may be reckless action. It may be a Hail Mary pass, but we can still take action. When we know the outcome beyond the shadow of a doubt, then we can still take action action. And in that action, in that defiant action, which we discussed last time with Aomer, which we will discuss again with Pippin, which we see here from the men of Gondor, right? In that defiant action, there is still virtue. There is still heroism. Against the power that now arises, there is no victory, says Danathor. So he is choosing the outcome that he can control. He is seeking to to enforce his will upon a world that is actually pretty indifferent to his will, pretty indifferent to any enacted will, in fact, right? Every single person in this story is caught up with powers far beyond the reckoning of Denethor. Do I not know thee, Mithrandir, he says, turning to Gandalf? Thy hope is to rule in my stead, to stand behind every throne, north, south, or west. I have read thy mind and its policies. Do I not know this halfling was commanded by thee to keep silence, that he was brought hither to be a spy within my very chamber? And yet in our speech together I have learned the names and purpose of all thy companions. So with the left hand thou wast used me for a little while as a shield against Mordor, and with the right bring up this ranger of the north to supplant me? I mean, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Well, okay, he is wrong. Gandalf does not seek to be the power behind the throne in the West. At least not directly. He does not seek to be a figure of authority in his own right, but he does seek to be a steward of Middle-earth. So yes, in a sense, Gandalf does want to stand, if not behind the throne, then at least beside the throne of every kingdom, North, West, and South. He wants to aid the the preservation in the first instance and the healing in the second instance of Middle-earth itself. That is his role. That is his, his duty here. Uh, was Pippin not commanded by thee to keep silence that he was brought hither to be a spy within my very chamber? Well, no, but I mean also ambiguously, yes. Uh, that is not true, but it is true if you squint enough. If you are already Denethor and you are already paranoid and you are already mad with the knowledge that the Palantir has granted you, then that isn't that far from the truth. It's a question of interpretation rather than anything else. With the left hand, thou wouldst use me for a little while as a shield against Mordor? Well, yes. With the right, bring up this ranger of the north to supplant me? Yes, both of those accusations are actually true. What Denethor is missing is his duty. Denethor is the steward of Gondor. His job is to act as a shield against Mordor and then to yield up his authority to the, uh, to the returning king. That is it. This is the ultimate betrayal of Denethor of his duty. I say to thee, Gandalf Mithrandir, I will not be thy tool. I am steward of the house of Anarion. And here we see... For all that Denethor is not under the influence of the ring directly, this has Sauron all over it. This has the fell influence of Morgoth all over it. Because look at this rationalization. I am the steward of the house of Anarion, not Isildur. The hell with Isildur, right? This is not, uh, this king that is coming back, hashtag not my king. I don't care about this guy. I would not step down to be the dotard chamberlain of an upstart, even were his claim proved to me, still he comes but of the line of Isildur. I will not bow to such a one, last of a ragged house, long bereft of lordship and dignity. That's some harsh language right there. And that is the repudiation of his duty, right? We can talk about Denethor's madness and we can talk about Denethor's grief and we can extend to Denethor through his madness, through his grief, through his despair, a certain pity, a certain sympathy even. But this is the line that indicates that he has absolutely rejected 
the role of the steward. He is now not protecting Gondor against the return of the king, which is the whole point of the line of stewards. He is the 26th in this line, and, and he's absolutely abrogating that responsibility at this point, which Gandalf explores, of course, by asking him this. What then would you have, said Gandalf, if your will could have its way? I would have things as they were in the days of my life, answered Denethor, and in the days of my long fathers before me to be the lord of this city in peace and leave my chair to a son after me who would be his own master and no wizard's pupil. But if doom denies this to me, then I will have naught, neither life diminished, nor love halved, nor honor abated. To me, it would not seem that a steward who faithfully surrenders his charge is diminished in love or in honor, said Gandalf, and at the least you shall not rob your son of his choice while his death is still in doubt. At those words, Denethor's eyes flamed again, and taking the stone under his arm, he drew a knife and strode toward the bier. But Berigon sprang forward and set himself before Faramir. So, cried Denethor, thou hadst already stolen half my son's love, now thou stealest the hearts of my knights also, so that they rob me wholly of my son at the last. But in this, at least thou shalt not defy my will to rule my own end. Come hither, he cried to his servants. Come, if you are not all recreant. Then two of them ran up the steps to him. Swiftly he snatched a torch from the hand of one and sprang back into the house. Before Gandalf could hinder him, he thrust the brand amid the fuel, and once it crackled and, and at once it crackled and roared into flame. Then Denethor leapt upon the table, and standing there wreathed in fire and smoke, he took, took up the staff of his stewardship that lay at his feet and broke it on his knee. Casting the pieces into the blaze, he bowed and laid himself on the table, clasping the palantir with both hands upon his breast, and it was said that ever after, if any man looked in that stone unless he had a great strength of will to turn it to other purpose, he saw only two aged hands withering in flame. Gandalf, in grief and horror, turned his face away and closed the door. For a while he stood in thought, silent upon the threshold, while those outside heard the greedy roaring of the fire within. And then Denethor gave a great cry and afterwards spoke no more, nor was ever seen again by mortal man. This is the death of Denethor. What then would you have, said Gandalf, if your will could have its way? Well, all right. So what does this look like to Denethor? If Denethor is all-powerful, if Denethor had some kind of, I don't know, ring by which he could turn the world to his will, what would that world look like? I would have things as they were in all the days of my life, answered Denethor, Denethor, and in the days of my long fathers before me, to be lord of the city in peace and to leave my chair to a son after me who would be his own master and no wizard's pupil. He wants the preservation of the stewardship. He doesn't, as a steward of Gondor should want the restoration of the line of kings. He doesn't want Isildur's heir, heir excuse me, to return. He wants lordship. He wants dominion. And actually, the city is pretty inconsequential there. And the fate of the rest of Gondor is pretty inconsequential. And the fate of the rest of the world is utterly inconsequential. To be lord of the city in peace and leave my chair to a son after me who would be his own master and no wizard's pupil. But if doom denies this to me, then I will have not neither life diminished, nor love halved, nor honor abated. The heavy irony here, of course, is, as Gandalf points out, that he is robbing his son of that choice. He wants his son to be a free man. He wants his son to be his own master and no wizard's pupil. I want him to make his own choices, by which I mean I want him to make exactly the choices that I would make in his stead. I want continuity, but it is not a continuity of line. It is a continuity of self. 
I want to be as my long fathers, my, my ancestors, right? Long fathers is such a great Anglo-Saxon formulation of that, by the way. I love that very much. I want to be as my long fathers were, and I want my son to be as I am. That is it. I want stasis. I do not want evolution. I want the status quo. I have want the status quo that I was promised, the status quo that I have strived to, to preserve. That is, that is what I want for, for Minas Tirith. And of course, we can trivially oppose this with Faramir's words to Frodo back at Anathanun. What is it that Faramir wants? Faramir wants to see Minas Tirith restored to its glory. He doesn't want it feared, except as one might fear a man ancient and wise, right? He wants, he wants the greater days of the past, not the preservation of the status quo. Faramir understands that the role of the steward is only ever temporary. It is only ever a placeholder in history. Or... Well, I suppose, no, it is only ever a placeholder in history, right? It ends one of two ways, either with the return of the king or not with the return of the king and the end of the line of the stewards. That is it. But it is not supposed to be an end in itself, and Denethor wants that end in itself. To me, it would not seem that a steward who faithfully surrenders his charge is diminished in love or in honor, says Gandalf. Hey, remember how you're the steward? Remember how this is literally your job title? Neither life diminished, says Denethor. Neither life diminished. I will not be lowered in rank nor love halved, nor honor abated. I will not take the hit of the king returning. I will not be reduced by that. And Gandalf reminds him that that is what stewards are for. And at the least, you shall not rob your son of his choice while his death is still in doubt. And this anger that, that blazes within Denethor in this moment, this acknowledgement of doubt, because doubt is, in a sense, the dark sister of hope right? Sometimes when we have faith in things which are good, we are bedeviled by doubt. And doubt is the introduction of shadow. Doubt is the introduction of ambiguity. But hope is also ambiguity. Hope is also possibility in exactly the same way as doubt is possibility. And this doubt here seems to anger Denethor so much that he wants to take direct action. At those words, Denethor's eyes flamed again, right? He's not just taking a considered action. He is driven to this action by Gandalf's words. Taking the stone under his arm, he drew a knife and strode toward the beer, but Baragond sprang forward and set himself before Faramir. Baragond interposing himself between his lord and his imminent lord, I suppose, preserving the life of Faramir here, which Denethor clearly aims to end. Denethor wants certainty. He wants finality. He wants that, that absence of hope, that absence of doubt. And if doubt is fearful, then, well, if doubt is sufficiently fearful, then hope too can be fearful. Hope too can turn our hearts to dark places. Hope too can be a pain within us. It can be an, uh, an ache within us. The possibility that things might be better, but they're not yet, that can hurt the human heart. And Denethor here is clearly hurting by it. Yeah. Um, let me see. Becca's asking me about the actual stewards. <laughs> I know about the stewards, Becca. I am of the line of Stuart. Let me tell you, twice over, in fact. Both my uh, my grandfather's, uh, my, my maternal grandfather and grandmother are from one line of the Stuarts, and my paternal grandmother and grandfather are from another line of the Stuarts. I'm Stuart as far back as you care to go. My actual lineage comes from the Stuarts of Athol, though not the, the actual Highland Stuarts, but rather the Stuarts of, uh, of Blair Athol there in the Grampian Mountains. But yes, that, that is my direct heritage. So yes, that's a history podcast, though, that someone better equipped than me could probably do. Hey, Becca, don't you have a history podcast? Okay, let me see. 
Um, Seastar is channeling Denethor? That's a terrible thing. Oh, no. Oh, Seastar is saying... Um, I can't handle this. I thought maybe I would hear something of hope and despair that might be helpful for me, but I falter, I flee. I don't have a ruler's responsibility, but I don't suppose that makes my despair less mad, broken, and pitiful than Denethor's. Don't want to keep spending tonight feeling like garbage. Sea Star, I am so, so sorry for that. That's a terrible thing. You know, hope is traumatic. Hope can be violent, and hope can be harder than certainty, which is why I think that when we struggle with certainty in our lives when we struggle with depression you know both clinical and non-clinical i think that the comfort of that certainty the comfort of that security can be can be comforting it, it can be a more peaceful place because hope demands of us in a way that despair doesn't defiance also demands of us in a way that despair doesn't but what we're proving throughout this of course is that denethor is not right Aomer was not right. Aomer felt despair when the ships of the Corsairs were sailing up the Anduin, and he was wrong. Denethor now feels despair for, well, more than this reason, but also for this reason, right? He also knows the black ships are coming and is sure that this is going to be the last blow against the gates of Minas Tirith, and he too is wrong. The whole point of Eucatastrophe, the whole point of Tolkien's entire entire concept of, of grace, I would argue, and this is true for Tolkien in his secondary creation and absolutely true for Tolkien in his life too, the whole point of that notion of eucatastrophe is that we can never know the end beyond all doubt. We can never know the final outcome beyond all doubt. And if we doubt, then we also hope. I have, of course, struggled with this too, as I know many of you have. I'm sure all of us have to some degree or another struggled with this. But for me, when I turn to Tolkien for comfort and for solace, as I have done pretty much throughout my entire life, when faced with adversity, when faced with desperation, when faced with despair, I turn to Tolkien for the reminder that we can never truly know the outcome beyond all doubt and that hope lingers. Hope is not a fragile thing. Hope is not a, a desperate Hail Mary pass, right? Look at the conception of Tolkien here. I've talked before about despair and about dark moments being the cracks that the light shines through. But the reason that the light shines through those cracks is that the light actually underpins all of creation, all of existence, all of experience. The light of grace and of goodness is everywhere. It is constant. It is always and though things can look dark right now, if we take action, if we do as Theoden did, right? If we master our despair in that moment and we ride forth, then we give an opportunity for eucatastrophe. We invite an opportunity for eucatastrophe. We create a crack in the darkness through which the light can shine. And that crack can only be created by action. It can only be created by, uh, by a movement, by disruption, by changing the status quo. That, I know, is, is small comfort to those who are actually dealing with these questions of depression and real-life despair. But that doesn't make it, I think, less theologically or philosophically sound. Tolkien believed that for all of the diminution of man, right, for all as we move into the fourth age, men become lesser, become more mortal, become us, that magic departs the world, that there is still eucatastrophe, that there is still an underlying grace which is looking for opportunity, which is offering opportunity and maximizing opportunity, seizing opportunity in those moments. What we need, though, is, well, Bilbo taking up arms against the spiders 
or Theoden riding out upon the field of battle here at the Palinor. We need action. We need to open that crack and the light will shine. Even Aomer, believing that all has come to ruin in the end, believing that the Corsairs of Umber are going to fall upon the Palinor, that, that you'll remember that as the ships are coming up the Anduin, as the, the first sight of them is revealed, the men of Gondor lose heart, but the orcs and the host of Mordor are inspired with a new fury, inspired to a new fury by this, this coming support, this coming reinforcement up the river. We can never know the outcome beyond a doubt. We can never be sure. Denethor has a palantir, and he is wrong. Faramir sees the evidence with his own eyes, and he is wrong. Bilbo faced Smaug and faced goblins and escaped the Misty Mountains and was caught in a pine tree by goblins and wargs beneath, and he was wrong. There is always, always hope, and hope is not a fragile thing. It is the fundamental thing, I would argue. It is... And this is true, I think, whether you are theologically inclined or not, right? The theological argument, I suppose, and, and I am ill-equipped to offer this perspective, but I will do my best to represent it as fully and as sincerely as I might. The theological argument is that God is good and the universe was created for a purpose and that there is always hope for that reason, if no other. Philosophically, if you're inclined more toward a rationalistic appraisal of this, we can simply never know anything for sure. We can never be completely confident. We can never be so certain in the next turn and twist of fate or chance, if chance you call it, we can never be so certain that despair is the only option. And even then, when we feel despair, we ought instead to turn to defiance. We ought instead to cleave through that black shadow, the, the bright iron as, as Khan Bhurihan had it, right? We, we need to cleave through that shadow and create a space for the light. I, yeah, I mean... That is not to suggest that it's easy. That is not to suggest that it is a trivial thing. That is not to suggest that it is even always possible. But that is the fight. That is the battlefield in which we find ourselves in daily life. That is, I think, the challenge to each and every one of us to continue to act, to continue to recognize these moments of opportunity, to continue to seize and create possibility for grace, whether that is a a theistic grace, you know, the, the grace of a loving God, or it is the grace of a universe that is just too damn random, that is just too damn unknowable to be fixed in despair for sure. Jackie's saying here in the chat, I think a main point of Tolkien's philosophy is that whenever someone believes they know and see all ends, brackets, prideful, they are wrong in the end. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. This is the, the thrust and the cut of this entire conversation between Denethor and Gandalf here. So, cried Denethor, thou hadst already stolen half my son's love, now thou stealest the hearts of my knights also, so they may rob me wholly of my son at the last, but in this at least thou shalt not defy my will to rule my own end. Circling back around to this conversation that he and Gandalf had earlier about the right of a man, the right of a king to define his own death. Come hither, he cried to his servants, come, excuse me, come if you are not all recreant. Uh, recreant here meaning... Um, cowardly in the general sense, but also specifically failing in duty, right? It is a cowardice in the face of one's duty that he's uh, that he's referencing here. And we should note, too, a stark tension here, and, and this is a much larger topic than we have time to discuss, particularly since I spent so long rhapsodizing on hope just a moment ago. Um, there is a marked tension here between Tolkien's frame of reference, that is to say the Anglo-Saxon frame of reference, in which choosing an honorable death in the face of despair was actually 
kind of noble and kind of well-regarded and well-respected, and Tolkien's Christian theology, which of course takes a much dimmer view of suicide. Tolkien's absolutely leaning on his, his Christian theology there rather than the Anglo-Saxon historical reference. Then Denethor leapt upon the table and standing there wreathed in fire and smoke, he took up the staff of his stewardship that lay at his feet and broke it on his knee, shattering the symbol of his stewardship, absolutely in the last, defiantly abrogating his own responsibility here. Casting the pieces into the blaze, he bowed and laid himself on the table, clasping the palantir with both hands upon his breast. And it was said that ever after, if any man looked in the stone, unless he had great strength of will to turn it to other purpose, he saw only two aged hands withering in flame. This, then, is the end of Denethor. Caught in despair, caught in hopelessness, caught beyond even the, the possible, arguable, theoretical redemption of doubt, caught here in ultimate despair, fueled by a certainty, fueled by a knowledge given to him by the Palantir, which, again is incomplete, right? His knowledge, the, the knowledge that he gains through the Palantir is absolutely incomplete. The first finger of the hand of Mordor has now touched Minas Tirith, that all of the east is moving right now, a fleet of ships is coming up. Well, yes, but if he actually had seen the fleet of ships, if he had actually paid attention, if he had actually looked more deeply, he would have seen Aragorn. Now, that arguably would have been a greater threat to Denethor, right? He is so invested in his role that he cares not for virtue anymore. He cares not for his duty anymore. He is, yeah, he has betrayed his, his oath here. He has betrayed his duty as steward of Gondor. But hope of, def uh, or, or certainty of defeat at the hands of Mordor? No, we're not there yet. We're never going to be there, even if the shadow falls, even if Frodo fails, even if Sauron regains the One Ring. Like, okay, the odds are getting slimmer and slimmer and slimmer, but the duty of man of good heart is still to fight on. Hashtag resist. Let's move on to Berigond and the death of the Nazgul here. At length, they came back to the steward's door, and Berigond looked with grief at the porter. This deed I shall ever rue, he said, but a madness of haste was on me, and he would not listen, but drew sword against me. Then taking the key that he had wrested from the slain man, he closed the door and locked it. This should now be given to the Lord Faramir, he said. The prince of Dol Amroth is in command in the absence of the Lord, said Gandalf. But since he is not here, I must take this on myself. I bid you keep the key and guard it until the city is set in order again. Now at last they passed into the high circles of the city, and in the light of morning they went, th they went their way toward the houses of healing, and these were fair houses set apart for the care of those who were grievously sick, but now they had been prepared for the tending of men hurt in battle or dying. They stood not far from the citadel gate in the sixth circle nigh to its southward wall, su southward wall excuse me, and about them was a garden and a green sword with trees, the only such place in the city. There dwelt the few women that had been permitted to remain in Minas Tirith, since they were skilled in healing or in the service of the healers. But even as Gandalf and his companions came carrying the bier to the main door of the houses, they heard a great cry that went up from the field before the gate, and rising shrill and piercing into the sky passed and died upon the wind. So terrible was the cry that for a moment all stood still. And yet when it had passed, suddenly their hearts were lifted up in such a hope as they had not known since the darkness came out of the east, and it seemed to them that the light grew clear and the sun broke through the clouds. This is the slaying of the witch-king of Angmar here. Oh, we're talking about uh, Eowyn here, talking about Eowyn's 
hopelessness and despair. Yeah, unfortunately, as I mentioned right in the uh, the pre-show to the podcast version of There and Back Again, uh, we're not going to get a chance to talk about this for about another six weeks. It's going to be until chapter five of book six of The Lord of the Rings that we are going to have to suspend Eowyn's story, basically. In chapter five of book, of book six, uh, we're going to get the scene between Eowyn and Faramir, which is going to answer a lot of outstanding questions. But of course, we'll get to to Eowyn in just a moment. So here we have the death of the Witch King of Angmar. We have that rising cry. We have that that shriek that is torn apart by the wind and passes into nothingness. This is the lifting of the presence of the Nazgul, the dark shadow over those who wore at the moment before the very gate, even as Gandalf carries the, the beer himself toward the Houses of the Healing. I do want to talk about Baragond, though. I know I foreshadowed this last week or even the week before. At length they came to the steward's door, and Baragond looked with grief at the porter. This deed I shall ever rue, he said, but a madness of haste was on me, and he would not listen and drew sword against me. The quiet tragedy of this has always touched me. It is one thing for Baragond to stand against Denethor in the protection of Faramir. It is one thing for Denethor to cast aside his oath to the steward of Minas Tirith and take up arms in the defense of an innocent, effectively, which is what Faramir is at that point, right? Baragond is serving a greater good, serving a greater virtue at this point, but he's doing so against Denethor himself. He is responding to malicious action, to evil action, to dark action in that moment. The porter was just doing his job, but Baragond had haste. He had a great necessity driving him forth. This deed I shall ever rue, he says. I shall ever regret this. I shall feel grief and sorrow over this thing that I did, killing the the porter. But a madness of haste was on me, and he would not listen, but drew sword against me. I had no option. He wouldn't listen to reason, and he drew his sword, and I had to kill him. So he takes the key, not taking the key from the body of the dead man, because, of course, he already has the key. The, the porter was already dead by the time that we got here, which is why the doors stand open anyway. This should now be given to the Lord Faramir, he said, recognizing Faramir's position in the chain of command. The Prince of Dol Amroth is in command in the absence of the Lord, said Gandalf. But since he is not here, I must take this on myself. I bid you to keep the key and guard it until the city is set in order again. You'll note that Gandalf here, uh, taking this upon myself, he's not talking about the key. I must not take this burden and carry it myself. No, he's taking the responsibility. He's taking the authority here. Since uh, Prince Imrahil of Dol Amroth is not present in the citadel and cannot give the command, Gandalf is presuming the command. Gandalf here is wielding the authority of the absent king of Gondor. He is actually acting as a steward and is doing so, well clearly better than Denethor. So we pass to the houses of healing. These were fair houses set apart for the care of those who were grievously sick, but now they were prepared for the tending of men hurt in battle or dying. They stood not far from the citadel gate in the sixth circle, nigh to its southward wall, and about them was a garden and a greensward with trees, the only such place in the city. Remember how no living thing can be found in Minas Tirith, right? Particularly in the citadel. The citadel is just carven of stone. There is no tapestry even hanging within the citadel, only statuary there. No, but there is a small copse of trees, I suppose, here near the Houses of Healing, recognizing that connection between the natural world and the healing arts. And presumably there in that in that little copse grow healing herbs and, and efficacious plants of many kinds right there in, in a, an herb garden next to the Houses of Healing. So we have the cry out of the Nazgul, and then we wrap up with Gandalf's thoughts on what happened with Denethor. 
But Gandalf's face was grave and sad, and bidding Berigond and Pippin to take Faramir to the Houses of Healing, he went up to the walls nearby, and there, like a figure carven and white, he stood in the new sun and looked out, and he beheld with the sight that was given to him all that had befallen. And when Eomer rode out from the forefront of his battle and stood beside those who lay upon the field, he sighed, and he cast his cloak about him again and went from the walls. And Berigond and Pippin found him standing in thought before the door of the houses when they came out. They looked at him, and for a while he was silent. At last he spoke. "'My friends,' he said, "'and all you people of this city and of the western lands, "'things of great sorrow and renown have come to pass. "'Shall we weep or be glad? "'Beyond hope the captain of our foes has been destroyed "'and you have heard the echo of his last despair. "'But he has not gone without woe or bitter loss, "'and that I might have averted but for the madness of Denethor. "'So long has the reach of our enemy become. "'Alas!' But now I perceive how his will was able to enter into the very heart of the city. Though the stewards deemed that it was a secret kept only by themselves, long ago I guessed that here in the White Tower one at least of the seven seeing stones was preserved. In the days of his wisdom, Denethor would not presume to use it to challenge Sauron, knowing the limits of his own strength. But his wisdom failed. And I fear that as the peril of his realm grew, he looked in the stone and was deceived, far too often, I guess, since Boromir departed." He was too great to be subdued to the will of the dark power. He saw, nonetheless, only those things which the power permitted him to see. The knowledge which was obtained was doubtless often of service to him, yet the vision of the great mind of Mordor that was shown to him fed the despair of his heart until it overthrew his mind. "'Now I understand what seems so strange to me,' said Pippin, shuddering as his memories shuddering at his memories as he spoke. The Lord went away from the room where Faramir lay, and it was only when he returned that I first thought he was changed, old and broken.' "'It was in the very hour that Faramir was brought to the tower "'that many of us saw a strange light in the topmost chamber,' said Baragond. "'But we had seen that light before, "'and it has long been rumoured in the city "'that the Lord would at times wrestle in thought with his enemy.'" So Denethor, in desperation, seeing the shadow fall upon Gondor, seeing the rise of Mordor once more in the east, turned at last, beyond the step of wisdom, turned at last to the Palantir. But everything that he saw in the Palantir was moderated for him by Sauron. It wasn't true. It wasn't accurate. It was... <laughs> It wasn't fair and balanced. Hmm? It was twisted and perverted to serve an underlying cause. It was propaganda. Sauron could not dominate Denethor, arguably, by the way, potentially, could not dominate Denethor the way that he dominated Saruman? Saruman's greatness there may have left him open to greater domination, greater perversion of will, arguably, though the degree to which Saruman was actually corrupted by the Palantir is at least ambiguous, right? We're, we're not certain to what degree Saruman had... We're not certain to what degree Saruman's belief that he was capable of opposing Baradur and the power of Sauron was part of Sauron's manipulation of him, right? That is an open question that is never going to be satisfactorily resolved. But Gandalf tells us here that Sauron couldn't just dominate Denethor, that Denethor is still a great man. Remember the Numenorean blood that flows within Denethor's veins, that he is more a man of Numenor than pretty much anyone still living in the world through some, some quirk of genetics. He is basically this, this throwback relic of a Numenorean age, of the Second Age, in effect. So we throw back to that, and thus Denethor is capable of withstanding the will of Sauron, but notwithstanding his own will, notwithstanding this encroaching madness and desperation, that after Boromir left, Denethor turned more and more often to the Palantir, and everything that he saw within the Palantir, which he believed to be 
accurate, which he believed to be objective, and which is, is in a sense, accurate and objective, I guess the difference is this. He believed it to be complete, and it was not. It was incomplete. He saw the black ships of the Corsairs of Umber sailing up the Anduin, but he didn't see Aragorn. He didn't see the banner crafted by Arwen back in Rivendell. He didn't see the coming of the king. And yes, arguably, if he had, he would still have felt despair, but for a very different reason. He was shown only what Sauron wanted him to see, and thus the despair that he was already leaning into was completed. This, if there is a tragedy of Denethor, is the tragedy of Denethor that he was manipulated into despair. He was manipulated into certainty in defiance of hope itself by Sauron through the Palantir. This is, yeah, powerful stuff. We'll, we'll note here too in the, in, the first, uh, in the first paragraph there, after the, the cry of the Nazgul has been heard, Gandalf goes up to the battlements. He looks down like a figure carved in white. He stood in the new sun and looked out, and he, beheld, and, and he beheld with the sight that was given to him all that had befallen, right? This is the gift that has been bestowed upon Gandalf by his status as one of the Astari, by his return to Middle-earth as Gandalf the White versus Gandalf the Grey, right? By some power that is given to him, he is able to look out on the field and behold what has actually transpired. And when Eomer rode out from the forefront of, forefront of his battle and stood beside those who lay upon the field, he sighed and he cast his cloak about him again and he went from the walls. He clearly understands what has happened here. Things of great sorrow and renown have come to pass. Shall we weep or be glad? He's recognizing the fall of Theoden. He's presumably recognizing the fall of Eowyn too. Things of great sorrow and renown? Well, the slaying of the witch king of Angmar, the fulfillment of the prophecy. This is a great moment. This is a triumph for the forces of light in Middle-earth, but it's also a triumph that comes with great, great cost. And at this moment, of course, everyone believes that Eowyn is dead. This takes us through to the end of chapter seven of book five. Let me catch up with the chat here. Um, yeah, this is interesting. Um, I'm going to struggle to read this. Uh, Jacqueline, I like that quite a lot. Uh, Jacqueline says, I feel like Denethor's biggest failing is his pride. I would agree. I would agree. And as is so often the case, I think that uh, Denethor hurls out accusations which are reflective of his own weakness and frailty, right? He accuses Gandalf of pride and a desire for power. He accuses Gandalf of vanity. It's Denethor all over, right? That, that's the flaw. That's the, the hamarsha of, well, apparently the entire line of stewards from Denethor, right? Denethor has this. Boromir has this. Faramir doesn't. Faramir escapes this, which is a wonderful thing. But yeah, yeah. Jackie asking, did he really believe he could control what the stone show showed him? Pride before the fall. Yes, though... I wonder if he had cause to believe that the stone wasn't showing him everything. I wonder if he had cause to believe that the stone was corrupted by connection, by, by direct literal connection, right? It was corrupted by Sauron and the presence of the Ithil stone, uh, or I guess we could call that the Morgul stone in Barad-dûr now. Um, I don't know that he would, I don't know that he would suspect that the Palantir would not be objectively true. Clearly he believes that it is objectively true by the time that he falls into his last despair. But yeah, I, I'm not sure what was said of that. Um, I'm not sure, you know, what lore was maintained by the stewards of Gondor as uh, 
As Gandalf says here, though the stewards deemed that it was a secret kept only by themselves, though the stewards have been pretty damn pleased with themselves that they managed to keep this super double secret all through the line of the stewards of Gondor. Long ago, I guess, that here in the White Tower, one at least of the seven seeing stones was preserved. In the days of his wisdom, Denethor would not presume to use it to challenge Sauron, knowing the limits of his own strength. He would not presume to use it to challenge Sauron in exactly the way that Aragorn did, by the way. But the right was mine and the strength was sufficient, right? As Aragorn says, there are two things that require uh, that are required in the using of the Palantir, the right and the strength. Well, Denethor had the right. As steward of Gondor, as preserver of Minas Tirith, he has by proxy, by transference, he has the right to use the Palantir. That is to say that the Palantir would not reject outright his authority but he does not have the strength. And in the days of his wisdom, as Gandalf says, he would not presume to use it to challenge Sauron, knowing the limits of his own strength. He would know that he wasn't powerful enough to challenge Sauron outright, but his wisdom failed. And I fear that as the peril of his realm grew, he looked in the stone and was deceived. But Gandalf there is leaving open that space between challenging Sauron outright and using the scrying stone, using the Palantir as a means of gathering information and intelligence. Did Denethor believe that he was challenging Sauron? Did Denethor believe that he was under the influence of Sauron? Well, maybe... But you know who did? You know who did figure this out? Look at what Baragon says here at the end. But we have seen that light before, and it has long been rumored in the city that the Lord would at times wrestle in thought with his enemy? Well, the men of Minas Tirith are pretty damn sure what happens when you... Well, okay, not necessarily use the Palantir, not necessarily, right? They don't know what was happening. They may not know about the Seeing Stone, but they know, they believe that Denethor is in fact in contest with Sauron up there in the tallest tower of the Citadel. And they're right. Let's push on since, oh my goodness, I'm already an hour into my time. Okay, let's push into the uh, Houses of Healing. And yay, you guys, let's turn away from the darkness of Denethor too. Well, okay, still a very sad scene, actually, but a scene that at least contains within it the seeds of happiness. Slowly, the lights of the torches in front of him flickered and went out, and he was walking into darkness, and he thought, this is a tunnel leading to a tomb. There we shall stay forever. But suddenly into his dream there fell a living voice. Well, Mary, thank goodness I found you. He looked up, and the mist before his eyes cleared a little. There was Pippin. They were face to face in a narrow lane, and but for themselves it was empty. He rubbed his eyes. Where is the king? he said. And Eowyn? Then he stumbled and sat down on a doorstep and began to weep again. They've gone up into the citadel, said Pippin. I think you must have fallen asleep on your feet and taken the wrong turning. When we found you, you were not with them. Uh, when we found that you were not with them, Gandalf sent me to look for you. Poor old Mary, how glad I am to see you again, but you are worn out and I won't bother you with any talk. But tell me, are you hurt or wounded? No, said Mary. Well, no, I don't think so. But I can't use my right arm, Pippin. Not since I stabbed him and my sword burned all away like a piece of wood. Pippin's face was anxious. "'Well, you'd better come with me as quick as you can,' he said. "'I wish I could carry you. You aren't fit to walk any further. "'They shouldn't have let you walk at all. "'But you must forgive them. "'So many dreadful things have happened in the city, Mary, "'that one poor hobbit coming in from the battle is easily overlooked.' "'It's not always a misfortune being overlooked,' said Mary. "'I was overlooked just now by—' "'No, no, I can't speak of it. "'Help me, Pippin. "'It's all going dark again, and my arm is so cold.' "'Lean on me, Mary lad,' said Pippin. "'Come now, foot by foot. It's not far.' "'Are you going to bury me?' said Mary. "'No, indeed,' said Pippin, trying to sound cheerful, though his heart was wrung with fear and pity. "'No, we're going to the Houses of Healing.' "'We're going to have opportunity within the next couple of weeks to 
talk about another couple of hobbits in dire adversity, turning to each other for strength and companionship and courage and to analyze what it is that makes hobbits so utterly exceptional. But this is one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the book, right? When I talk about being perilously close to tears in the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, that's a joyous kind of tears at, at, at the, the coming of catastrophe and the, the, the heroism evident on the fields of the Pelennor. But this is, this is so different. The heartache of Mary here, under the shadow, under the fell influence of the Witch King of Angmar, under the suffering and the weight of pain and ordeal that he has faced, he's just now ragged. He's, he's now wrung out. There is little of Mary left. Slowly the lights of the torches in front of him flickered and went out and he was walking into darkness, right? He's, he's imagines himself here walking into darkness. This is a tunnel leading to a tomb where we shall stay forever. But suddenly into his dream there fell a living voice. Well, Mary, thank goodness I found you. He looked up and the mist before his eyes cleared a little and there was Pippin. He can still see he's not actually in darkness. This is the the coming of that malign and sorcerous influence of the Witch King of Angmar. This is the suffering that Mary has faced ever since contesting with the, the Witch King out on the fields of the Palinor. Where is the king and Eowyn? And he stumbled and sat down on a doorstep and began to weep again. And Pippin's just trying to, to, to reassure him here. But you're worn out and I won't bother you with any talk. But tell me, are you hurt or wounded? No. Well, no, I don't think so. But I can't use my right arm. Pippin, not since I stabbed him and my sword burned all away like a piece of wood. You'll note there that there's no energy in Mary's dialogue here. There's no expostulation. There's no, there's no uh, fiery interaction with Pippin. Look at, at, at Pippin. Poor old Mary! Exclamation point. How glad I am to see you again! Exclamation point. Contrast that with Mary. Well, no, I don't think so. Period. But I can't use my right arm, Pippin. Not since I stabbed him. Period. Mary is drained of energy, of being of his merriness, I guess, in this moment. It's terrible. It's just terrible. The Black Breath, says Jackie. There are other hobbits in these books? What? I know, I know. We'll get back to them in, in due course. Good Lord. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a minute, been a hot minute since we were up in uh, Kirith Ungol. But yes, next week's reading hopefully should take us through to the end of uh, through to the end of book five and the opening of the Black Gate. And then we will segue back to uh, Frodo and Sam. That's assuming, of course, that we can finish tonight's session in the uh, yeah half hour that I have left. Let's see what we can do. They turned out of the lane that ran between tall houses and the outer wall of the fourth circle, and they regained the main street, cl uh, climbing up to the citadel. Step by step they went, while Mary swayed and murmured as one in sleep. I'll never get him there, thought Pippin. Is there no one to help me? I can't just leave him here. Just then, to his surprise, a boy came running up behind, and as he passed, he recognized Burgil, Baragon's son. Hello, Burgil, he called. Where are you going? Glad to see you again and still alive. I'm running errands for the healers, said Burgil. I cannot stay. Don't, said Pippin. But tell them up there that I have a sick hobbit, a parian, mind you, come from the battlefield. I don't think he can walk so far. If Mithrandir is there, he will be glad of the message. Burgil ran on. I'd better wait here, thought Pippin. So he let Mary sink gently down on the pavement in a patch of sunlight, and then he sat down beside him, laying Mary's head in his lap. He felt his body and limbs gently, and took his friend's hand in his own. The right hand felt icy to the touch. It was not long before Gandalf himself came in search of them. He stooped over Mary and caressed his brow and then lifted him carefully. He should have been born in honour into the city, he said. He has well repaid my trust, for if Elrond had not yielded to me, neither of you would have set out. And then far more grievous would be the evils of this, uh, far more grievous would the evils of this day have been, he sighed. And yet here is another charge on my hands, while all the time the battle hangs in the balance. The battle, not yet over, but Gandalf cannot turn away from the caring for Mary. Mary is here because Gandalf insisted, because Elrond yielded to him. 
if Elrond hadn't, then neither Merry nor Pippin would have accompanied uh, Frodo and Sam and the rest of the Fellowship on this journey. In fact, they would have done as they were supposed to do back in Tolkien's original conception of the Council of Elrond. That is to say that they would have been sent back to the Shire against some rising threat in the West. That first version of what will ultimately be the scourging of the Shire was supposed to happen contemporaneously with the rest of the events of Fellowship, right? Merry and Pippin were supposed to be sent back, or at least one of them was supposed to be sent back, depending on the version of the manuscript that you are reading. But Gandalf insisted, insisted to Elrond, and I dare say insisted to the professor as well. And so Merry and Pippin come with him. They accompany him on the journey. They accompany the fellowship on the journey until they are taken by the orcs at Parthgallon. And it would have been grievous. It would have been tragic if Merry had fallen. And you'll note, too, the beat here of Mary's head being laid in Pippin's lap. Another echo there between Frodo and Sam and Mary and Pippin. Hobbits are just really good at traveling in pairs, it turns out. So he dispatches Bergil. <laughs> Hello, Bergil. Where are you going? Glad to see you. Glad to see you again and still alive. Oh, we'll note here, too, uh, Parian is uh, Gondorian Sindarin for a hobbit, actually literally a halfling. You'll remember Pippin being referred to as Irnil i Ferienath, the prince of the halflings. Well, Parian is Ferienath. It's, it's a formulation of Ferienath, excuse me. So it's, uh, yeah, this is just a halfling. Um, don't, but tell them up there that I have a sick hobbit, a parian, mind you. Uh, uh, okay, don't say hobbit because maybe Gandalf won't be there. If you see anyone else, say halfling because then they will know what I'm talking about. Come from the battlefield. I don't think you can walk so far. If Mithrandir is, is there, he will be glad of the message. And so he is as Gandalf comes to recover Mary. Let's get to the houses of healing properly. Then an old wife, Eorath, the eldest of the women who served in that house, looked on, looking on the fair face of Faramir, wept, for all the people loved him. And she said, Alas, if he should die, would that, there were one, uh, would that there were kings in Gondor as there were once upon a time, they say, for it is said in old lore, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so the rightful king could ever be known. And Gandalf, who stood by, said, Men may long remember your words, Eorath, for there is hope in them. Maybe a king has indeed returned to Gondor, or have you not heard the strange tidings that have come to the city? I've been too busy with this and that to heed all the crying and shouting, she answered. All I hope is that those murdering devils do not come to this house and trouble the sick. Then Gandalf went out in haste, and already the fire in the sky was burning out, and the smoldering hills were fading where, uh, while ash-gray evening crept over the fields. Now, as the sun went down, Aragorn and Eomer and Imrahil drew near the city with their captains and knights, and when they came before the gate, Aragorn said... Behold, the sun setting in a great fire. It is a sign of the end and fall of many things and a change in the tides of the world. But the city and realm has rested in the charge of the stewards for many long years, and I fear that if I enter it unbidden, then doubt and debate may arise, which should not be, which should not be while this war is fought. I will not enter in nor make any claim until it be seen whether we or Mordor shall prevail. Men shall pitch my tents upon the field, and here I will await the welcome of the lord of the city. But Eomer said... Already you've raised the banner of the kings and displayed the tokens of Elendil's house. Will you suffer these to be challenged? No, said Aragorn, but I deem the time unripe, and I have no mind for strife except with our enemy and his servants. And the prince Simrahil said, Your words, lord, are wise, if one who is a kinsman of the lord Denethor may counsel you in this matter. He is strong-willed and proud, but old, and his mood has been strange since his son was stricken down. Yet I would not have you remain like a beggar at the door. Not a beggar, said Aragorn. Say... A captain of the rangers, who are unused to cities and houses of stone. And he commanded that his banner should be furled, and he did off the star of the North Kingdom and gave it to the keeping of the sons of Elrond. 
So two parts here, which I've put on one slide just because they happen to uh, to run the one into the other. Let's talk about Eorath, the eldest of the women who served in that house. Eorath, who serves in the Houses of Healing. Eorath in Cinderin simply translates as old woman, which is another example of Professor Tolkien giving us this very specific and pointed and not terribly creative, but very acute kind of uh, transliteration of, of names here. Eorath, old woman, which makes it super weird, by the way. I didn't realize that until today. I didn't ever think about the name Eorath in this context until today and went looking and discovered, yeah, old woman. That's what it means in, in my little Cinderin to English dictionary that I have. Um, but that's particularly odd because in the video game Middle-Earth Shadow of Mordor, the protagonist's wife is also named Eorath, despite being kind of pointedly and somewhat flatly young and comely and beautiful and, parenthetically, killed in the opening moments of that game. That's not only, or I should say, it's not only odd in Middle-earth Shadow of Mordor that Eorath should be called Eorath, which means old woman, even though she is young and lovely, because her husband Talion and uh, her son, uh, so, okay, Talion and Eorath's son in Middle-earth Shadow of Mordor is called Dirhail, which means wise man. He, too, also killed very early in the game. And Talion's name, the protagonist of Middle-earth Shadow of Mordor, Talion doesn't have any Cinderin root. Talion means nothing in Cinderin. It is not a Tolkienian name at all. It is instead a Latin reference. Lex Talionis, or the Law of Talion, also known more conventionally in the popular culture as an eye for an eye. That is the Lex Talionis. That is why Talion in Middle-earth Shadow of Mordor is called Talion. I will at some point stream Middle-earth Shadow of Mordor because... um. It's a super fun game with some really interesting lore and a lot of very bad lore is the thing. It is not great Tolkien is the problem with Middle-earth Shadow of Mordor. It is, a, like, as video games go, it's a super fun video game. If you like the open world, like Assassin's Creed model of video gaming, if you want a cross between like Assassin's Creed and the Batman Arkham Asylum games and you want it infused with at least a passing familiarity with what Professor Tolkien accomplished in the, in the pages of The Lord of the Rings, then go check out Middle-earth Shadow of Mordor. But yeah, a lot of it is is very bad Tolkien, but there is some really great Tolkien in there too. So maybe we'll, we'll stream that someday and talk about it. This idea, uh, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. This, of course, gives us the title of tonight's session. For once, I'm actually arriving at the slide that gave the title to tonight's session, which is a lovely thing to do. For it is said in old lore, tells Eorath, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so the rightful king could ever be known. This is actually historically true, because from the Middle Ages up to the death of Louis XVI of France in 1793... It was thought that the hands of the king in France and in England actually had certain healing power, or very specific healing power, in fact. When anointed with oil, the hands of the king could ease or remove scrofula, the uh, the bacterial infection of the lymph nodes, which was called throughout that period, by the way, because of this understanding, it, the scrofula was called king's evil. It, that was the name of the disease, because the touch of a king could heal it. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. Then we get Aragorn and Eomer and Imrahil coming near to the city gates. You'll note, uh, behold the sun setting in a great fire. It is a sign of the end and the fall of many things and a change in the tides of the world. Hey, Eomer, what did you call it? A red nightfall. Sorry, yes, that was you demonstrating your prophetic vision. That was what you called it. Yes, a red nightfall is now here. The end and the fall of many things and a change in the tides of the world. But Aragorn doesn't yet know what he's talking about. He is perhaps arguably here also demonstrating that prophetic knowledge, right? He is a man foresighted here. Oh, 
a red nightfall. Yeah, it feels like significant things are changing here in the in the, the ways of the world. But the city and realm has rested in the charge of the stewards for many long years, and I fear that if I enter it unbidden, then doubt and debate may arise, which should not be while this war is fought. I'm not going to reveal myself as the king now. And uh, Aomer calls this out. Already you have raised the banner of the kings and displayed the tokens of Elendil's house. Will you suffer these to be challenged? Like, okay, are you actually going to enter into a debate with the men of Gondor over whether or not you are the returning king? And Aragorn says, no, no, I'm absolutely not. I am the king. This is my right. But now is not the time. The time is not yet ripe for my reveal, I suppose. Instead, though, he's going to enter in secret. When they had stood silent for a long time beside the king, Imrahil said, Where is the steward? And where also is Mithrandir? And one of the guards answered, The steward of Gondor is in the houses of healing. But Eomer said, Where is the lady Eowyn, my sister? For surely she should be lying beside the king and in no less honor. Where have they bestowed her? And Imrahil said, But the lady Eowyn was yet living when they bore her hither. Did you not know? Then hope unlooked for came so suddenly to Eomer's heart, and with it the bite of care and fear renewed that he said no more, but turned and went swiftly from the hall, and the prince followed him. And when they came forth, evening had fallen, and many stars were in the sky. And there came Gandalf on foot, and with him one cloaked in grey. And they met before the doors of the houses of healing. And they greeted Gandalf, and said, We seek the steward, and men say that he is in this house. Has any hurt befallen him? And the lady Eowyn, where is she? And Gandalf answered, she lies within, and is not dead, but is near death. But the Lord Faramir was wounded by an evil dart, as you have heard, and he is now the steward, for Denethor has departed, and his house is in ashes. And they were filled with grief and wonder at the tale that he told. But Imrahil said, So victory is shorn of gladness, and it is a bitter, it is bitter bought if both gone... Uh, excuse me. So victory is shorn of gladness, and it is bitter bought if both Gondor and Rohan are in one day bereft of their lords. Eomer rules the Rohirrim. Who shall rule the city meanwhile? Shall we not send now for the Lord Aragorn? And the cloaked man spoke, and he said, He has come. And they saw as he stepped into the light of the lantern by the door that it was Aragorn, wrapped in the grey cloak of Lorien above his mail and bearing no other token than the green stone of Galadriel. I have come because Gandalf begs me to do so, he said. But for the present I am but the captain of the Dúnedain of Arnor, and the lord of Dol Amroth shall rule the city until Faramir awakes. But it is my counsel that Gandalf should rule us... Sorry, but it is my counsel that Gandalf shall rule us all in the days that follow and in our dealings with the enemy. And they agreed upon that. Then Gandalf said, Let us not stay at the door, for the time is urgent. Let us enter, for it is only in the coming of Aragorn that any hope remains for the sick that lie in the house. Thus spake Eorath, wise woman of Gondor, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. We'll begin, as we so often do, with the very last line of this passage. I completely love when Eorath says this to Gandalf, and Gandalf says, men may remember your words for many years, Eorath. He's making sure that that's the case. He's crediting her here. He's giving her the citation. Thus spake Eorath, wise woman of Gondor, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. Wow. Giving due credit there, Gandalf. Good job. Look at how elevated this language is. It's stunning. We get a very specific syntactical construction, and we get it all the way through this passage. And one of the guards answered, colon, attributed dialogue. But Eomer said, colon, attributed dialogue. And Imrahil said, colon, attributed dialogue. We do that all the way through this passage. That is absolutely archaic. That is a medieval practice for attributing dialogue before we ever got to, you know, I mean... Back in that period, of course, we weren't so concerned with pesky things like punctuation. So it was just easier to attribute the dialogue first rather than, than at the end of the dialogue. But this is, this is very elevated language. 
And even the language that we get from our characters, even that attributed dialogue, is not pushing back against that high level of rhetoric, but is rising to meet that high level of rhetoric. That line from Emrahil, So victory is shorn of gladness, and it is bitter bought if both Gondor and Rohan are in one day bereft of their lords. Eomer rules the Rohirrim. Who shall rule the city meanwhile? Shall we not send now for the Lord Aragorn? Well, okay, we've had dialogue from Imrahil before, and he doesn't usually talk like that. Like, he doesn't usually frame his his sentences in such complicated syntax. Aomer, too, where is the Lady Eowyn, my sister? For surely she should be lying beside the king, and in no less honor, where have they bestowed her? That doesn't quite sound like Aomer either, right? They've both kind of elevated their language. And when I say they both have elevated, elevated their language, I don't believe that in this moment that was true. But in our accounting of this moment, as this moment is, is, is laid out in prose for the reader of The Lord of the Rings we get this elevated language instead, which is enormously, uh, enormously powerful. Becca saying, y'all, Middle English has the most chaotic punctuation. The run-on sentence is king, right? This is where we get that, that, uh, that inclination toward paratactical structure that Tolkien has been so engaged with uh, over the course of the last few chapters. Um, we still get a little bit of that here, but, but less so, yes. Um, good. So, so Aragorn has come. He has come in secret with the, the cloak of Lorien, right? This gray-cloaked figure that Eomer and uh, Eomer Hill have both been hanging out, like, like five minutes ago, they saw Aragorn, and then they're like, well, here is Gandalf and a gray-cloaked figure whom we do not recognize at all. Aragorn, the cloaks of Lorien, apparently very good at shrouding one's identity, yes. So we move into the uh, the houses of healing after the the reveal there of of the terrible news. Oh, and we get a great beat here. Um, yeah, we're probably not going to make it through to the end of uh, the end of these slides, but this is okay. We'll do the best that we can. Then Aragorn entered first, and the others followed. And there at the door were two guards in the livery of the citadel, one tall, but the other scarce the height of a boy. And when he saw them, he cried aloud in surprise and joy. Strider! How splendid! Do you know, I guessed it was you in the black ships, but they were all shouting corsairs and wouldn't listen to me. How did you do it? Aragorn laughed and took the hobbit by the hand. Well, met indeed, he said, but there is no time yet for travellers' tales. But Imrahil said to Eomer, Is it thus that we speak to our kings? Yet maybe he will wear his crown in some other name. And Aragorn, hearing him, turned and said, Verily, for in the high tongue of old I am Elisar, the Elfstone, and in Vinyatar, the Renewer. And he lifted from his breast the green stone that lay there. But Strider shall be the name of my house, if that, if that be ever established. In the high tongue it will not sound so ill, until Contar I, shall be all, I will be and all the heirs of my body. And with that they passed into the house, and as they went toward the rooms where the sick were tended, Gandalf told of the deeds of Eowyn and Mariadic. For, he said, long have I stood by them, and at first they spoke much in their dreaming before they sank into the deadly darkness and it is given to me to see many things far off. Aragorn went first to Faramir, and then to the Lady Eowyn, and last to Mary. When he had looked on the faces of the sick and seen their hurts, he sighed. Here I must put forth all such power and skill as is given to me, he said. Would that Elrond were here, for he is the, great, the eldest of all our race, and he has the greatest power. Elrond, the lore master of Rivendell, the greatest healer of our time, as previously discussed, and Aragorn is... Well, wise, of course, to understand that. So, okay, let's let's cover a couple of quick things here. Aragorn, <laughs> I love that beat from Imrahil. Is it thus that we speak to our king? Is it cool that this guard who I don't recognize and know nothing about, is it cool that this guard is like, hey, Strider, what's up? Is, is that how we talk to our king? Wait, 
is he going to be King Strider? Is that the name that he's going to take? And Aragorn turns and, and elevates the tone again. Verily, for in the high tongue of old, I am Elasar, the Elfstone, and Invinyatar, the Renewer. And he lifted from his breast the green stone upon his breast, an emerald, remember? But Strider shall be the name of my house, if that be ever established. In the high tongue, it will not sound so ill. Until Kontar, I shall be... I will be and all the heirs of my body. So he is going to call his house, his, his ruling dynasty here, Telkontar, taken from the Quenyan Telco, meaning leg. So I like to think that, yes, Strider, but also Longshanks, right? To go all the way back to Bree, all the way back to Barlam and Butterbur, that this is the house of Longshanks now ruling Gondor, the, the United Kingdom, in fact, of Gondor in the south and Arnor in the north. The high tongue, verily in the high tongue of old, he's talking about Quenya there, right? He's not talking about Sindarin. He's certainly not talking about Gondorian Sindarin. He's talking about Quenya. Here's my big question. Why does Pippin think that Aragorn's on the ships? Strider, how splendid. Do you know, I guessed it was you in the black ships, but they were all shouting Corsairs and wouldn't listen to me. How did you do it? Hey, Pippin, I never took you to be a hobbit foresighted. Is Pippin telling the truth here? Well, presumably, right? Presumably he's telling the truth. He's, he may have heard of the coming of the king, right? He may have heard tales up here. We know that Aorth hasn't because she's been so distracted by the tending to the sick, but Pippin's just been hanging out here with Baragond and presumably he has heard some stories of the coming of the king to the, the Pelennor fields. So it is possible that he's just doing a bit here with Strider. He's, it's, it's possible that he's just being Pippin at this moment, but it's also possible that he had some inkling, that he's actually being sincere. How splendid! Do you know, I guessed it was you in the black ships. Maybe that's Pippin's response. Maybe Pippin... Well, actually, you know what? Let's put a giant pin in that, because we are, as I said, going to talk about that at the very end of what will theoretically be next week's session, right at the end of Book 5. That is the beat upon which we conclude Book 5, is Pippin staring despair and death in the face. So we'll maybe talk about that next time. Um, good, good. All right, excellent. Yes, Jackie's saying this is the most sure he's been of a future marriage to Arwen. Yeah, we're going to get some great uh, Aragorn and Arwen beats coming up pretty soon, but you're absolutely right. Yes, good. Okay, let's, uh, Leggy Lord says our Faramir. That's exactly it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Hail Leglord, King of Gondor. I, I don't hate that, I got to tell you. Okay, let's, um, let's move into, yes, the Herb Master here. Thereupon the Herb Master entered. Your lordship asked for King's Foil, as the rustics name it, he said, or Athalas in the noble tongue, or to those who know somewhat of the Valinorian. I do so, said Aragorn, and I care not whether you say now Asaya, an Aranian, or King's Foil, as long as you have some. Your pardon, lord, said the man. I see you are a lore master, not merely a captain of war. But alas, sir, we do not keep this thing in the houses of healing, where only the gravely hurt or sick are tended, for it has no virtue that we know of, save perhaps to sweeten a fouled air or to drive away some passing heaviness, unless, of course, you give heed to the rhymes of old days which women such as our goody Orans still repeat without understanding. When the black breath blows and death's shadow grows and all lights pass, come Athalas, come Athalas, life to the dying in the king's hand lying. It is but a doggerel, I feel, I fear, garbled in the memory of old wives. Its meaning I leave to your judgment, if indeed it has any, but old folks still use an infusion of the herb for headaches. Then in the name of the king, go and find some old man of less lore and more wisdom who keeps some in his house, cried Gandalf. Less lore and more wisdom. Less knowledge. Less rationalism. Less science and more wisdom. Gandalf drawing the connection here between... Well, uh, this is Saramanic, right? This is this is kind of an echo of Gandalf's confrontation with Saruman at Orthanc, of, of Gandalf's discussion of Saruman way back in the Council of Elrond. 
this is the kind of lore, the kind of study that Saruman was actually given to. The understanding of a thing in its component parts. He who breaks a thing to understand it has left the path of wisdom, as Gandalf says. Here we have broken apart our knowledge of medicine, our knowledge of herb lore, right? Even the herb master doesn't credit Athalas with anything because the actual story, the actual knowledge of this thing is preserved now in, in fragments of Dogrol, Dogrol being, you know, trivial or, uh, or undignified poetry, right? So he credits here, yeah. Uh, unless, of course, you give heed to the rhymes of old days, which women such as our goody Oroth still repeat without understanding. <laughs> oh, let's all laugh about this. It's, it's pretty hilarious. But no, Athalas is useless. I mean, the poem itself, when the black breath blows and death's shadow grows and all lights pass, come Athalas, come Athalas, life to the dying in the king's hand lying. That is a surprisingly apposite bit of poetry for this moment and this circumstance, isn't it? This is pretty sharp. Your lordship asked for king's foil, as the rustics name it, or Athalas in the noble tongue, or to those who know somewhat of the Valinorian, I do so, said Aragorn, interrupting him here, right? He's about to give the, or to those who know somewhat of the Valinorian, showing off his expertise here, I do so, said Aragorn, and I care not whether you say now Asaya Aranian or king's foil, as long as you have some. I can give you the Valinorian, I can give you the, the Westron, the, the common speech, I can give you every version of this name. Give me the give me the herb, give me the thing that I need. Your pardon, Lord, said the man. I see you are a lore master, not merely a captain of war. That is an incredibly important beat here. We're going to circle back around to this. This is going to be very significant later and has, in fact, already been significant. Remember what Baragon says about Faramir, that few now believe that men of war can also be men of art and lore, that we can have this unification between the the martial arts and all other arts, that men are either warriors or not, that we have fragmented the population of Gondor, that few believe that it is possible for one man to embody all virtues, but Faramir does, actually, which is why he is beloved in Minas Tirith, and also Aragorn, too. I see you are a lore master, not merely a captain of war, as if those two things can't be compatible, as if those two things in the body of the king aren't necessarily compatible. Now, of course, the Herbmaster here does not know that Aragorn is the king. He doesn't realize that yet, but this is an important reunification of this bifurcated spirit of Gondor. This is going to be of critical importance as we move through the long denouement that we get in book six, yeah. Guys, I think, let me see here. Yeah, you know what? I think, uh, no, in fact, let's do one more slide because we'll get Burgil bringing the king's foil and then we'll, uh, then we'll wrap up and we'll do uh, the waking of Eowyn and, and attending to Mary and everything else next week. I think that'll work out beautifully. And at last, Bergol came running in and he bore six leaves in a cloth. It's King's foil, sir, he said, but not fresh. I fear it must have been culled two weeks ago. At least I hope it will serve, sir. Then looking at Faramir, he burst into tears. But Aragorn smiled. It will serve, he said. The worst is now over. Stay and be comforted. Then taking two leaves, he laid them on his hands and he breathed on them. And then he crushed them, and straightway a living freshness filled the room as if the air itself awoke and tingled, sparkling with joy. And then he cast the leaves into the bowls of steaming water that were brought to him, and at once all hearts were lightened, for the fragrance that came to each was like a memory of dewy mornings of unshadowed sun in some land of which the fair world in spring is itself but a fleeting memory. But Aragorn stood up as one refreshed, and his eyes smiled as he held a bowl before Faramir's dreaming face. Well now, who would have believed it? said Eorath to a woman that stood beside her. The weed is better than I thought. It reminds me of the roses of Imloth Meloe when I were a lass, and no king could ask for better. Suddenly Faramir stirred, 
and he opened his eyes, and he looked on Aragorn who bent over him, and a light of knowledge and love was kindled in his eyes, and he spoke softly. My lord, you called me. I come. What does the king command? Walk no more in the shadows, but awake, said Aragorn. You are weary. Rest a while and take food and be ready when I return. I will, lord, said Faramir, for who would lie idle when the king has returned? Farewell, then, for a while, said Aragorn. I must go to others who need me. And he left the chamber with Gandalf and Emrahil, and Baragond and his son remained behind, unable to contain their joy. As he followed Gandalf and shut the door, Pippin heard Eorth exclaim, "'King! Did you hear that? What, what did I say? The hands of a healer, I said!' And soon the word had gone out from the house that the king was indeed come among them, and after war he brought healing, and the news ran through the city. Faramir knows Aragorn immediately. He recognizes his king through the application of Aragorn's healing art, through the the release of the power of the Athalas in the hands of the king. The Athalas has less power than this in the hands of the king. The use of Athalas here forms a nice three-beat through the uh, the passage of the story, of course. He first uses it on uh, Frodo back at Weathertop after Frodo was stabbed with the Morgul blade. He then uses it again on Frodo and also on Sam when they escape from Khazad-dûm, they escape from the mines of Moriel, and they are, they are there in the Dimril Dale. And now he's using it here in secret, kind of, and yet here... He is not uncloaked as the king in this moment, but the very act of using Athelas uncloaks him on its own. It is sufficient in this moment, and that is extraordinarily powerful. It will serve, he said. The worst is now over. Stay and be comforted. Then taking two leaves, he laid them on his hands and he breathed on them. And then he crushed them. And straightway a living freshness filled the room as if the air itself awoke and tingled, sparkling with joy. The breathing on them, the infusion of Aragorn's kingliness into the leaves of the king's foil, right? This this, this transactive relationship that he has with this miraculous herb. Aragorn can't simply breathe in the room and have the air turn to sparkling joy. He's not capable of that, but he can he can transform his power and transform the power of the Athalas through the application of his own kingly breath. Then he cast the leaves into the bowls of steaming water that were brought to him, and at once all hearts were lightened, for the fragrance that came to each was like a memory of dewy mornings of unshadowed sun in some land of which the fair world in spring is itself but a fleeting memory." This is so gorgeous, so glorious, so perfect, so idyllic that even our own beautiful world on a spring morning when everything is as perfect as it can possibly be seems but a fleeting memory of something more pure, something more ancient. Is this a direct reference to Numenor? Well, yeah, I'm inclined to think that it probably is, actually. We know that Athelas comes from Numenor, and we know that Aragorn, of course, descended of the line of kings of Numenor. Yes, I think that this is uh, this is the relic of the, the island that was raised at the beginning of the Second Age for, for the men of the West, yeah. My lord, you called me. I come. What does the king command? Immediate obedience from Faramir, immediate recognition of his duty to the king. Walk no more in the shadows, but awake, said Aragorn. You are weary. Rest a while and take food. And be ready when I return. He has been healed. And the king is now here in Minas Tirith, as Eorth and the other ladies are, are discussing here. The king has come. King, did you hear that? What did I say? The hands of a healer, I said. And soon the word had gone out from the house that the king was indeed come among them. And after war, he brought healing. And the news ran through the city. Aragorn's action here betrays his truth. 
And that, you guys, brings us to time, brings us past time. In fact, we covered a lot of material tonight. I'm feeling pretty good about it. Let me tell you that next week, we are going to cover the end of this chapter. Then we are going to move on to chapters 9 and 10, The Last Debate, and The Black Gate Opens, taking us all the way to the end of Book 5. That will be at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, next Thursday evening on May the 17th. That will be hopefully, hopefully, hopefully our last session on book five. There's not actually much to cover. Both the uh, both the last debate, the last debate is a very short chapter, and then the Black Gate opens also a relatively short chapter. So we will try our best. We only have uh, two or three more slides to uh, to get through here in the end of the Houses of Healing. So I'm pretty pleased at the progress that we made. That, though, is going to do it. And I'm afraid that I have a pretty hard out tonight, so I can't even dip into the question bucket. But uh, if you have great questions, by all means, bring them back next week, and we will see what we can do to address them. Thank you all so, so much for your company. And thank you all so much. I've had a particular rush of uh, email correspondence over the course of the last week on topics related to There and Back Again and the works of Professor Tolkien. If you're interested in emailing me and having a little uh, a little extracurricular correspondence about the works of Professor Tolkien, then you can email me directly, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for your time this evening. This has been an absolute blast and an absolute pleasure. Get in touch if you have thoughts. And if not, I shall talk to you all again next week. Until then, take care and fly, you fools! Fly, you fools!